and I'm going to be quite controversial here and, and suggest that the whole the whole architecture needs to be flipped. At the moment, it's very educator-led. The, the experience I've had in the past is when we've gone out and tried to partner with an RTO and deliver accredited training, we've been dictated to into how it would be delivered. We had very little say and input into the program. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis and today's topic is incorporating digital skills into vet delivery. Our Vocational Voices today are Michelle Cicelli. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Steve. Michelle's team leader, research and data analytics branch of NCVR. Her colleague, Bridget Wybrow, research officer, research and data analytics branch of NCVR. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Steve. And Susie Cutie, uh, head of organisational development and learning, Metro Trains, Sydney. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Susie. Thanks, Steve. Pleasure to be here. Right, well, let's get underway because it was late in 2019, an invitation-only forum was convened by NCVR to develop some practical strategies for incorporating digital skills into vet delivery and to determine how any implications for the vet educator workforce could be addressed. Now, as a result of that event, NCVR has now published two good practice guides, one based on vet delivery and the other on the vet educator workforce. Bridget, I'll turn to you first because underlying last year's forum and these new best practice guides is the assertion that the vet sector is lacking when it comes to incorporating digital skills. Uh, are you able to put that into some sort of context for us? Um, has this area of digital skills suddenly become dominant or has there been a, a gradual widening of the gap between what industry needs and users and what the VET sector offers? There seems to be a few elements at play here when it comes to seeing the scene. So more generally, um, the pace of technolog- technological change is a lot faster than it has been before and there also is an increasing reliance on technology in everyday life and jobs. So just two examples from my own life at the moment, currently working from home due to the pandemic and all of a sudden being able to use video conferencing like a pro. And then I also live on a farm and just like the use of technology in what was generally a traditionally manual labour role um, is a lot greater than it's been before. So they use stuff to check moisture and crops and cameras to see how much grain is in the bin. So that's kind of just the kind of general how technology has been changing. Um, Also, part of our research, we did some exploratory data analysis looking at digital skills related units of competency. And through this, we can see that there are indeed many digital skills related units in that qualification. A lot of them are only electives rather than core. So this means a person can complete a qualification without doing any of the digital skills related units. So it's not that these skills aren't available in the vet sector, but more that they aren't necessarily incorporated in the best way yet. And there's currently a digital transformation expert panel, which is developing a digital transformation skills strategy. And they're looking into this issue as part of that. So I guess you could say it is more widening of the gap. You've just raised a very interesting point there about this digital component being core, uh, being elective rather than core. 
Because in the real world, the digital impact is core for many of our lives. It's not something we can pick and choose from. Um, so, Michelle, can I turn to you? I mean, how does this issue of digital skills play out among vet educators? Do they simply need to learn about technology trends in industry or do they need to pick up the digital uh, competencies themselves? Well, Steve, there's um, a few different aspects to unpack here. Um, firstly, there's the expectation that vet ed- educators are on top of the technology or technologies um, that are being used in the industry in which they are teaching. I mean, I guess, you know, part of the need uh, to maintain industry currency. Um, and so, and then as Bridget spoke about, um, because of the rapid changes in technology, uh, in the workplace and in everyday life, vet educators need to try as much as possible to ensure that their own digital skills are current. But Simply um, being able to use technology does not necessarily mean that um, you know how to teach that technology. So there's a need to, uh, for vet educators to know and use the most appropriate teaching methods to teach with technology and to teach their students um, digital skills or how to use the technology. And um, it came up in our forum, there were a number of participants who emphasised that it's important to make this distinction between teaching technology or digital skills and using technology for teaching or for online learning. The skills that are needed are actually quite different. And and I want to pick up also the fact that you talked was one thing to have digital competency, but to be able to teach and make use of incorporating digital is important. And in fact, Susie, this does lead to uh, the case study. You provided one of the case studies uh, in the best practice guide for vet educators. Um, It revolved around the use of augmented reality for workers uh, who are manufacturing precast concrete panels for the Sydney Metro tunnels. Now that helped raise some important questions about the nuances involved in incorporating digital elements into education. I wonder, could you give us a bit of the, the background by start telling us about that project? The group that we were we were training was about 450 um, workers and they were they really sort of came from the labour force area. So they weren't, uh, they were quite low skilled labourers. Um, so there were already some um, challenges that we had to face in terms of uh, upskilling them and um, giving them the necessary uh, competencies to be able to perform their jobs on site. Um, so we had to really account for their language literacy and numeracy um, and something that we actually didn't factor in at the time but we, we've worked out later was around their digital literacy. Um, so the, the, the catalyst for us investing in the development of an augmented reality app was to overcome some of the challenges um, with accessing large plan equipment for training, so predominantly the skill set was around safety and manual handling um, and the maintenance of the um, operating machinery. Um, so when we developed the app and, and we rolled the app out, what we actually found uh, was whilst it was a very interactive instructional mode of delivery, it wasn't actually well integrated into the actual training program itself. Um, so I don't feel that the, you know, the learning outcomes um, were optimised and the actual use of the device and the use of the technology was not optimised. Um, so we really, I guess, highlighted for us that there was a need to have um, like a digital integrator role involved with this process because when it came to the actual delivery piece, um, we found we spent a lot of time, um, the train spent a lot of time in on-site support and a lot of time with 
spent um, troubleshooting and supporting the um, the students through accessing the actual technology themselves. So it actually took a little bit away from the learning component of the um, of the program. It's interesting to me how assumptions around technology is a blind spot for many of us because when I heard about you using augmented reality in this project, you just mentioned language and, and things like that. I would have thought that would have overcome that because it's so visual. So uh, would you agree that that surprised people, that that was still an issue? I think it did to a degree. Um, there, whilst it was very visual and it was very interactive, there are still some key, you know, uh, messages on the on the as part of the learning uh, tool. So there was there was a lot of text. Um, there were some recorded messages and videos. So there was a lot of auditory learning as well. But you know, the when we're talking about safety, it's the you know we can't compromise on safety. So there were some key learnings out of that. Was we really needed probably spend a little bit more time in sharing um, some uh, tutorials or content. For the learners that take into account all the LN requirements um, so that the learner felt comfortable with utilizing the technology and we could overcome some of those LN issues at the beginning. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight, some preparatory work before would have been, um, would have helped us a lot and achieved a better outcome for the, uh, for the workers. I think the notion of a digital integrator is quite novel. Um, Michelle, how does the discussion around that digital integrator role sit within the other elements of the best practice guide uh, for digital educators? Yeah, I found this a really interesting concept um, uh, that Susie was talking about. Um, and it it does um, fit in um, w- with what we were talking about at the forum. It, it's it suggests someone who's both a competent user of the technology and then they can translate that into being competent in teaching technology. So that is they understand how best to teach others how to use the technology. So now a solution could be um, that a training organisation employs a specialist who sort of straddles that divide between developing the technology and then um, applying the technology in an educational setting. That, that could be a pretty expensive solution and not really effective in the long run in building the right skills in um, vet educators. So something that was coming out um, from the forum and, and listening to see the, um, the examples that Susie was talking about um, was, you know, what are some of the ways that we can support the capability development of vet educators um, so that they can build their skills in, in both aspects? So getting a, a better idea about the actual technological tools, but how they can actually translate into the learning um, situation. Actually, just picking up on that, uh, it's going to be imperative for vet educators to increase those competencies because another little novel observation that was being made in this document is there will come a time very soon, if it's not already here, in which the students, that those being taught, have greater digital competency mm. uh, than the vet educators where they are at the moment. Do you think that is getting through and are there 
protocols and guidelines uh, that we can pick up from other parts around the world. Yeah, yeah, it is true, isn't it? Um, you know, and I guess you can sort of look at your, if you've got children, some of, you know, your own kids and, <laughs> and you know, I, I guess sometimes I think, oh, you know, mum, you know, you're just, you're just not getting it. But, um, and I guess that is that aspect that um, in many cases, the learners, you know, will be younger than the educators and may well have, or be more comfortable in using the technologies. Um, but certainly this is a message, you know, um, that's coming through that we do need to help vet educators themselves develop their digital skills. And it's certainly gaining traction in Australia, um, but internationally. And it is actually something that's still relatively new. Like we have primarily been focused on um, integrating digital skills in the actual learning itself, but have sort of forgotten about, oh, actually, there's someone who has to then teach those digital skills. So it, it is, re- even internationally, it is sort of relatively recent um, that people are looking at this issue. And so there, yeah, so in, in developing the Good Practice Guide, and, and we shared this with the, the forum participants as well, we did come across um, a few international models um, that can... I guess, direct us or help us sort of frame this. And one that's really interesting is the European Framework for Digital Competence of Educators. So that's, or short term is DigComp EDU. Um, They have these nice little sort of shortening of things. And it's a really comprehensive framework. If I can, if I may, um, I'll describe it as briefly as I can, but there's six key aspects and these they focus on the educator's professional activities um, and their so their professional competence, their pedagogical competence, and but also the learner's competence, which is an important thing. So the six aspects very quickly cover professional engagement, um, so how you use digital technologies for communication and collaboration and professional development, um, digital resources, so you know the sorts of materials that you're using to actually um, create the materials that you're, you want to share with the learners. Teaching and learning, obviously, um, how you actually use these digital technologies for teaching and learning. Now, assessment, and this is a really key area because, and I guess we're all sort of learning how we do assessment uh, using di- digital technologies and strategies to enhance that as well. And But then there was these other aspects to it, so that focused on those learners' competencies, so empowering the learners themselves, like how best to use digital technologies, um, how they can personalise it and make them um, really become engaged actively in their learning. And then the last one was about facilitating their digital competence um, so that they actually took responsibility in using the information, communication, creating content, um, using it for problem solving. So I guess almost in some ways transferring the skills that the educator has learned and really making sure they've passed those skills um, onto the learners and how best to make the most um, out of the digital technologies. And again, just very briefly, with this, this framework is very extensive, but there's within those six key areas, there's 20 odd, 22 competencies and, and the, the educator can go and have a look at where they sit against all of these competencies. And there's a bit of a scale of proficiency. Um, and I think it's quite a nice little scale. It starts from around uh, you're either a newcomer or explorer and you go all the way up to, say, a leader or a pioneer. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, 
it's 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 comprehensive it's um extensive and it's a really nice starting point to get a sense of where you sit in terms of capabilities now more locally um look there's other frameworks within australia um and so one that's um quite interesting actually was developed by um for the agricultural industry and um they had a look at um it's a self-assessment questionnaire, um, whilst it is specific to the agricultural industry um, and it's available through the Cotton Research and Development Centre website. But, you know, there's some things there. It focuses on digital communication, digital literacy, um, personal learning and mastery. So, it, again, it's asking those questions. Hey, how often do you use te- digital technologies in in framing your work or using them to analyse and communicate that information. So again, you can use these self-assessment frameworks to see where you sit and then I guess then to see what professional development or what things you need to do to get more, um, uh, I guess, uh, au fait and more comfortable with using these technologies. And in fact, I noticed that in in that particular best practice guide, there is that emphasis on that self-assessment at the beginning of this journey. Yeah. Um, I want to turn to the other best practice guide, the one on vet delivery, uh, and turn to Bridget with this, because uh, there is a, a mention there that digital skills should become a key component of foundation skills, receive the same prominence that currently occurs with language, literacy and numeracy, that's pretty profound, Bridget. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because um, these skills, as mentioned before, are becoming more important in everyday life. So you can now book doctor appointments online and even check in online so you don't need a queue in the waiting room, but then also in many regular everyday jobs. So you can think of a waiter now using a tablet to take orders instead of paper and pen, or meter readers are now using GPS technology as well. So by including digital skills as a part of foundation skills, it will help to prepare the future workforce. So they'll have the baseline skills needed to meet the requirements of these jobs. And this is something that is also recognised by the Commonwealth Government. And they currently have a project underway where they are including digital skills alongside language literacy and numeracy as a part of foundation training in remote areas. I'm actually also just want to pick up on one thing. This is my own little bugbear, and it is, and it picks up on what Susie mentioned before about some of the workers in her case study who came from a lower level of literacy and different language backgrounds. And it's this: it's digital literacy and competency in the area of cybersecurity. Because if there's one thing I know from my work is many Australian businesses are being undone at the moment by cybercrime through someone way down in the chain who accidentally succumbs to a phishing scam and hands over the keys to the kingdom. Uh, I'll just open that up to anybody on this panel. Uh, Is there a case for something like this to be singled out as a mandatory component? Cybersecurity, you know, as you said, it's definitely something that everyone needs to be aware of in the workplace because you click on a dodgy link in an email, it can bring down your entire work network. Um, But in fact, there was a recent cybersecurity cross-sector project led by Skills for Australia, which has developed vocational training in cybersecurity relevant to multiple industries. And these cross-sector units were endorsed at the end of the year So what's really important about having these units of competency that can be used across sectors is that they can help fill in skills or knowledge gaps for the current workforce. So 
it means people can upskill without having to complete a full qualification. And if you think about it, if you did your training 20 years ago, these sorts of things would not have been covered. So it would help with those sorts of workers. And I suppose some of that, there's a psychological aspect. Susie, if I can turn to you, the, typical of, of many organisations like yours, there'd be pockets of people who just say, no, no, I don't need to do any of this digital stuff. It doesn't impact me. Um, how do you address that? How do you work out who needs what level and what mode of training within an organisation from your experience? Um, yes, it's a great point. And um, I have found over the years that there are pockets of that, resistance to change and resistance to adopting new technology. Um, you know, and I've worked with some trainers who just refuse to um, embrace um, a new new tool. Um, look, it is, it is challenging. And I think um, as we move into, you know, the new, the new year of technology, we've got to really um, keep pace with, um, with what's happening in the workplace. Um, and embrace these these types of devices and technology to ensure that um, our workers are skilled um, and we are minimising the impact on operations. We did find at MTS that there was very little difference um, to the um, acceptance of the new uh, suite of digital tools. They really embraced that and they engaged with it really well. Uh, when we moved into the classroom learning, we found that the um, engagement levels were very low. So I guess to to deal with those sorts of challenges is to probably spend a little bit of time beforehand um, when you're in that development stage to talk about the new tools, to get um, some experience, get the users playing with the materials, you know, in the sand pit, getting them um, touching and playing with the materials to see how the technology works. Um, to really get their buy-in and get them feeling comfortable with it. Quite often I feel that it's, uh, the reticence is probably more from fear um, and they don't feel comfortable de- delivering using a new, um, new sort of tool, learning tool, because they haven't had to, to play with it before. When we launched a, um, a different program using augmented reality and had the headsets on, um, we had a lot of trouble with the trainers um, picking it up quickly, they, they just couldn't get it. Um, so there was a lot more time spent um, getting them more familiar and comfortable with um, with that. But to be honest, the, the key, I think, for learning um, is a higher degree of experiential learning, making sure that we're, we're taking that learning into out of the classroom and into the workplace. So we do a lot more um, trainings on the stations, on the trains, and we found that the students really re- respond well to that. They feel very empowered and engaged. Um, and we use more of like a perpetual accreditation model, which is shorter sessions, higher frequency, um, so that the students can build that muscle memory and really uh, retain all that, that, all that knowledge and improve their skills in the workplace, uh, which leads to more, I guess, that um, e-learning and agile learning uh, micro modules, um, which gives the gives the uh, student or the learner more flexibility and more choice in the when they learn and how they learn. If there's one theme I've noticed in my years working with NCVR and just out in society, it's that life and career is just going to get harder and demand more of us all the time. 
Uh, and, and, and I want to turn back to the, the educators' uh, best practice guide here, Michelle, because um, there is a, a section there that talks about how educators need to ground their learning in workforce reality. And the suggestions are educators joining industry associations, um, but also people from industry getting involved with educators. I mean, it's a two-way street and demanding. Is that realistic? Well, I guess for many vet educators, it's not unrealistic as they also are still working in the industry. Um, But for those who are working full-time as a vet educator, I mean, there are ways um, that they can engage with the industry, such as through online forums, um, joining LinkedIn groups, um, joining relevant industry associations. um, But, you know, acknowledging that, like for so many of us, and as you said, Steve, doing such things does take additional commitment and energy on top of our already busy workloads, I'm sure. But it is interesting to pick up on what Susie was saying about that experiential element um, that really helps learners. Well, the same thing surely should apply to vet educators. So to bring in that experiential, to see how it's actually what they're teaching, how it is actually applied in the real world. But it is, it is definitely a two-way street. And we do suggest um, in the Good Practice Guide that, you know, one way is to ensure industry um, currency is to bring in the industry experts to the learning science, you know, and to share the latest technologies and learnings with the, the educators. But you have to, um, I guess, for that to happen, one of the key elements is that you have to have organisational support to allow that. That is really, really important because it's all very well for us to say um, educators need to go and do PD and they um, need to go and join various groups and what have you. But if they're not getting the support from the organisation, so if they're not getting either the financial support or the time off work, the educators shouldn't be expected to develop their own digital skills capability on their own or in isolation, as it were. And that's a very um, common term that we're throwing about these days. Yes. Susie, what's your quick reaction to the thought of vet educators descending en masse uh, at the workplace to uh, to take up this integration process? I would welcome it. <laughs> um, I think that's great. I mean, our our success has really been based on, uh, you know, the educator and the employer working hand in hand. I really see it as a as a true partnership. Like we 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 approach it as a co delivery model. And I'm going to be quite controversial here and and suggest that the whole the whole architecture needs to be flipped. At the moment, it's very educator led. The experience I've had in the past is when we've gone out and try to partner with an RTO and deliver accredited training, we've been dictated to into how it would be delivered. We had very little say and input into the program. So I kind of feel like uh, we already, you know, there's a lot of training and a lot of learning that happens in any way in the workplace. And really that should be looked at, harnessed, and then looking it back to the, back to the, the training package, back to the qualification and seeing how does that align, where are the gaps, um, and making it very, you know, employer-specific and putting really the customer or the employer first. You know, the, the educator should be there to support the, the learning and to and work together to reach that goal. I, I still feel it's very um, regulated and very inflexible in terms of what we can do. And, and for me, it's about providing the roadmap with some guidance of how to get there but we shouldn't be letting the rules dominate the process. 
disruptive and stifled innovation. And I wonder, Susie, um, the federal government have got those skills organisation pilots that are happening at the moment, and there's one that's um, specifically focused on the digital technology area. Um, and I know whilst um, you know where you work is not specifically digital technologies, but they've um, got some pilots happening in the health sector and mining and the idea I believe of those pilots is to work extensively with industry to really um, direct the vet focus and the learning. Um, So I don't know if you've got a view on that and um, whether or not you think that that might help flip um, the way that we actually do vet these days. I think that I think that sounds very promising, and certainly the discussions around that are heading in the right direction. I mean, I've worked in both sides. I've worked in I worked for the largest uh, vet provider in the Southern Hemisphere for 13 years, um, and then now I've moved into onto the other side as working in industry and as an employer. So I've I've first seen both sides of the the, the spectrum, and um, when you do think with a like-minded the educator, you can really make wonderful things happen. Like you can really get such great results and it really just requires a more of a consultative, flexible, open-minded approach. And as I said before, it's a 50-50 partnership. It's not one party having dominance over the other or dictating this is a... It's more of a collaborative effort um, with a common agenda, which is, you know, getting getting our workers skilled making sure they're confident um, and competent to do their jobs and making sure that they can go home safely at the end of the day. Hearing this uh, positive disposition towards collaboration, there's just something nagging me at heart. And it was um, an example, the WA government, uh, South Metropolitan TAFE and Rio Tinto collaborated to develop some qualifications and skill sets in automation uh, to meet future needs of industry. And one of the outcomes was to make sure what they came up with could be applied across industry, not just for Rio Tinto. What I don't understand is what's in it for Rio Tinto. It it seems like largesse to be stepping in. Am I misunderstanding that, uh, Bridget? Um, well, I can't speak for Rio Tinto specifically, but what I understand in this case study is, yes, they provided the funding to develop these um, qualifications, but also um, as part of that process, they had um, other industry represent- representatives involved just to help um, ensure that the skills were um, were needed by everyone and were best practice and stuff. Um, but also from our research um, and the forum participants, other benefits for employers in being involved in developing the vet training is that you know they're at the forefront of the training and are seen as an industry leader. Um, they're also able to specify what skills are required in the training and ensure any practical elements or simulations meet the current best practice. So these employers, um, not only are they helping the vet sector with developing the training, um, it also helps to, you know, for the employers to ensure that their, their current and future workers are undertaking training that will meet their needs. Unfortunately, time is really pushing against us at the moment, and I want to finish on the note of time. Uh, the Joyce Review noted some time ago that it can take 12 months to even a few years to create new qualifications, by which time 
sometimes those qualifications are out of date. So I'll turn to all of you one by one if you've got a thought about this. I'll start with you, Susie. Um, With that dilemma of the time lag, how much of that progress do you think depends on vet educators incorporating digital skills themselves as being the thing that slows down this uh, ability to adapt? That's a tough one, to be honest. I had a uh, thinking about that. I mean, if we're looking at training packages, the, the cycle for the, the upgrades takes, you know, can take a few years. Uh, technology is evolving at a rapid pace. So I, I, I wonder how we could keep those up to align. Um, my, I actually would say the focus really should be more on um, the actual technology, access to the actual technology in terms of its development. Um, you know, there isn't, there doesn't seem to be much in the way of support for that. Um, as an employer, if we wanted to um, utilise those sort of technologies, we, we'd have to look at um, investing that. So um, I, I'd, be, I'd put the question out there, is, it, is there any plan for, you know, some sort of um, government subsidy or support mechanisms where employers, um, organisations could work with um, educators in accessing these um, vital tools, digital tools? Bridget? There is the risk that, you know, the um, training is already out of date by the time it can be delivered. But I also think on a positive note, this is something that's recognised and is being looked at in the debt reform roadmap. So it is something that they're looking at to streamline, so that can only be a good thing. Michelle? Yeah, the time lag is difficult. And I think, as you were suggesting, there's a period of adaption. So we have to, um, you know, we do have to start investing in the digital skills capability of our vet educators. And I'd like to think that once you start doing that, and that might have to take, that will take a lot of money and a lot of effort and should probably be looked at more nationally. Um, But if you start doing that, and there has to be a point at which the vet educators are then their baseline level of skills for a start have risen and so therefore their ability to keep up with changing technologies may be better and so the lag in, in their knowledge as, uh, with, in terms of how the technology is changing may lessen. Um, but also just to end, I think there's another interesting part or point about collaboration which Susie sort of alluded to there about how we can better collaborate and be working very closely with the actual developers of the technology themselves. So right from the very outset, they're developing it with the pedagogy in mind, not trying to retrofit it. On that note, Michelle and Bridget from NCVR, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A special thanks to Susie for showing that there is a positive light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Thanks so much, Steve. Pleasure. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.